Welcome back to Surcast. We're so happy to have you back for part two, part two of the Whiplash Associated Disorder discussion. Uh, we're going to be touching a little bit more on the prognosis side of things, the treatment side of things. I'm really excited to dive back into the subject matter. So much information we had to split it in two, uh, but don't worry, we're back. This is a population that can get better faster, but the key is, is that you really have to figure out what kind of patient you have in front of you. We talked about ways of doing that with you know, fear avoidance, with the IES, um, trying to figure out if this person has extra stuff other than just the orthopedic problem that you obviously are tasked with treating. Uh, you know, Classifying these patients, unfortunately, is not quite as easy as it is for just your standard orthopedic patient. I don't know that we have a great treatment-based classification system uh, for for whiplash. Now there is a classification system. There's what is it, Meredith? Whiplash one, two, three, four, right? Yeah. Something to that effect. Uh, but they don't exactly. help the therapist. Yeah, exactly. But they don't help the therapist at all, really. At the end of the day, it doesn't give you any prognostic values. It doesn't tell you how hard it's going to be to treat this patient, and it certainly doesn't give you any treatment ideas. Um, so you know, we, we wanted to touch on this a little bit because I think it's a really important point to make. There are some ways of doing this. And there is some really good literature out there that at least helps maybe guide the way a little bit more. Uh, the first thing that I would like to point out, and maybe we'll post this article uh, up on the Circast Twitter feed uh, as well, is a um, clinical prediction rule from Richie et al. looking at the prognosis of your whiplash patients. Really easy to do, especially here in the benchmark CERC families, uh, because we have a lot of the information already. Um, actually, in case you have it in front of you, can you maybe run them through it really quick? Yeah, so the prognostic factors for full recovery are going to be um, if they're less than 35 years of age and have a neck disability index of less than 32%. Um, and according to the Ritchie 2015 article, like Matt said, this is an 80% positive predicted value. Uh, prognostic factors for ongoing and moderate to severe disability are going to be age greater than 35 years, neck disability index of greater than 40%, and a presence of hyperarousal symptoms. Um, which is going to give you a 91% positive predicted value. I think this is an important point. I mean, this is an important study, too, for us, because a lot of times, how many times have we been in an evaluation and a patient asks us, well, is this going to get better? Or if it's going to get better, how fast is it going to get better? You know, immediately, you have the majority of this information before they ever step foot in your actual examination room. You have the NDI that you can put in your computer, and you have their age. And it's something that right away you can say, well, honestly, the research says this is going to be the long haul, and we need to kind of get ready for that. Or the research says, no, you're the perfect candidate for therapy, and really, this should go swimmingly. So I think that that's uh, that right away that I think gives us a lot more power than the traditional classification system. The other thing that Casey wants to mention. Oh, I, I was just going <laughs> to ask a question to our yeah, people here. Yeah. So as I was preparing for this week and I'm looking over the prognostic factors, um, I'm thinking back, okay, Derek Cooley, you know, he's wanting to like leverage us to leverage everything positive. Mm. Obviously this person has been through something traumatic. Um, and of course we want to level with them to some extent, but you know, how much does our attitude, um, affect, you know, what they're experiencing. So do we tell them, you know, hey, oh, you know, the research doesn't look <laughs> good on you. <laughs> but, uh, you know, or do we, you know, no, put a positive spin on it? And I think it's also important from the clinician perspective, maybe, okay, so here's a kind of this general idea of how I think I'm, you're going to do, you know, but I'm going to keep that to myself and to the, in the back of my head. And then 
you know, making sure that we don't let that influence our decision making when it comes to this individual. Because I can totally see myself going, okay, you know, this is great research. This person's not going to do well. You know, what do I do with them? But making sure that that doesn't bias me. So for somebody listening to this, you know, don't, don't, well, this is great. I guess maybe we shouldn't say, you and it's know, one trial. This. Yeah. It's, you know, at the end of the day, it's one trial. And it is, the numbers are, are, are pretty large, you know, 80% yeah, and 91%. Totally. You know, those are pretty good large numbers. And, you know, maybe it's all on how you phrase it. You're leveraging positive outcomes there. Uh, but certainly, um, at, at the bare minimum, this is a good study to be aware of for you as you're going through your rain tree and you have to click prognosis <laughs> for that patient. Like, you know, you're going to be able to really easily assess that. It's going to help you with your treatment plan. I think... Um... An important point, though, for those that do fall into the more ongoing severe category is these are probably patients that have already transitioned to more of a chronic pain situation because that can very easily happen in this patient population. So a lot of times they haven't been really given a straight answer. They've been to a lot of doctors and been told a lot of things about how they maybe will improve or this might be what's going on. So maybe not saying in 90% chance you're not going to get better, but saying that there are there are some chronic issues that we need to work through and it might require kind of a multimodal approach which we'll talk about a little bit in treatment but I think if, if you're honest with them at first I've had a lot more success of people actually committing to therapy and committing to what we need to do uh, or if I just say you know yeah, you'll probably get better we have a couple things that we'll work on and then they don't get better in two weeks then they're frustrated again and they think that yeah, you're kind of really bad point guy. Really. Yeah. tailoring expectations I think is really important if they are set up for potentially a more negative outcome. Mm -hmm. You don't focus on the negative, obviously, but yeah. realistic expectations, that's why I think it's important to at least establish one to two goals together with the mm -hmm. patient and have, you know, show them you're typing it out or have something functional for you to ask them every time they come back into the clinic to make them a more active part of the treatment. Cause especially when we, when we get into chronic pain, it gets more into that, you know, that motivational interviewing and all that stuff that as PTs, we're not always very good at. Um, and so I think realistic expectations and making them an active role and part in their therapy is really important for them. I think yeah, understanding the person in front of you too. That's why that subjective history that Tyler and Casey hit on so much is super important. You know, don't have that be a three-minute interview. Like, get to know the person a little bit because, you know, if you talk to them for 20 or 25 minutes, yeah, maybe that seems like a long time to interview someone. I, I would say it's not because uh, at the end of that, you maybe have a little bit better idea of what they can take or maybe what the kind of information you need to give them. You know, maybe they are someone who needs to just to be shot straight and told, you know, what the, what the deal is, and, and maybe it's someone where you need to soften the blow a little bit more and, and focus more on, you know, not necessarily the prognosis, but what goals can we meet? And I think that is certainly important. Uh, that's actually a really interesting segue. Um, I really wanted to bring up a study. Uh, I, I know uh, every every therapist that's listening to this cringe there. Let's talk about more studies. <laughs> um, so... Uh, I, uh, there was a study that we talked about when, when we were in residency together in the cervical um, kind of unit uh, by Sterling and, and, and colleagues. It's actually a case series, not really even a, a trial of any kind. But they were going into, you know, it's very difficult at this point to classify these patients. And, and the classification systems that we have uh, don't really seem 
to be to be that helpful uh, in treating our patients. And so they decided to do just like a really simple classification system. I'd really like to maybe have a, a discussion about this, the system they used. Uh, it was it was crazy. They had a less complex and a more complex. They made it about as simple <laughs> as they possibly could. Uh, your less complex patient is going to have less of the extra stuff we talked about. Uh, maybe the three-item depression screen is negative. Maybe the two-item FABQ is negative. Uh, they waltz in. They're not wearing a cervical neck collar. If they're, you know, neck collar or soft collar, excuse me. Um, they're they're not scared of the air conditioning machine. You know, they're not. They don't have <laughs> hyperarousal. Um, you you don't know. Uh, that they really have any of the extra stuff that we're talking about. Um, and, and for those people, I think that we can maybe uh, put them in a box. And, I, and I, you know, I say that, I don't want to oversimplify it, but we can maybe say that this maybe would be someone where we look at it through the lens of maybe the treatment-based classification system that we talked about in episode one, your traditional neck pain patient. Be cognizant of the other things, but maybe we can put these people aside and say they're just going to benefit from regular old physical therapy. And then they move the other people into the more complex patients. And I, I really want to hit on this and kind of maybe get an idea of what you guys uh, all do because I think this is an important group to talk about because I think this describes the, a, a large percentage of whiplash patients. These are the patients who do have the FABQ, who maybe have the IAS test that suggests PTSD, who, who are overreacting to the air conditioner and have other kind of hyperarousal uh, uh, symptoms. So we need to find a way of addressing uh, the deficits in this, in this patient profile. Uh, and I think something really interesting uh, to touch on is that maybe these patients are not really going to benefit from super intensive manual physical therapy. As much as it kills my soul that they're not going to benefit from a specific manual cervical treatment. I think it's something to point out. There was a really good systematic review done by Sutton et al. that talked about the multimodal approach to treatment and how effective it was. And they found that actually patients who utilize the healthcare system less, who were encouraged to return to regular activities, uh, that those people did a little bit better. They got regular reassurance and maybe things were a little bit more hands-off, that those patients actually did a little bit better. Uh, So, you know, I have some reasons why I think that is. You know, why do you guys think that is? And maybe how have you used that in your clinical approach? So I think one of the reasons is that Every, you know, appointment that you go to and every treatment you receive is just bringing your attention back to your injury and it's more time and more energy spent focusing on your problem. So going into pain science and um, hypersensitivity, you know, sometimes they need to just get their mind off their injury. I mean, I think it makes total sense, you know, the the idea of continuously drawing one's attention to something, especially if it's a chronic issue, you know. We got to uh, sit down and talk to Jim. Uh, we'll sit down. It was a web chat. But um, about how you would treat... Could have been sitting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably weren't standing. Were you, were you standing the whole time? Were you standing the whole time? Were you doing like a squat? I'm going to lose my train of thought all over again. Anyway. All right. You were sitting down in a webcast. Okay. We uh, got to sit down with Jim Elliott in a web chat to discuss treatment and how you would treat this patient population. And one thing he mentioned, and I cannot remember the study for the life of me, maybe Casey remembers it, I have no idea, um, was where they just gave an educational pamphlet to patients and compared that to treatment. Um, And the results were actually better in the education group. So I think it's just a point to know, yeah, we shouldn't probably just hand them a pamphlet and kick them out the door, but knowing that some education, some discussion about how you can return to your usual activities as much as possible. Um, that can make a big change in their pain and progress.
instead of harping on what hurts all the time. Well, I think studies like that, too, show you something like, because at the end of the day, why can't you use both, right? So, you know, if PT treatment was not ineffective in that study, it just wasn't any more effective than the educational pamphlet. So why don't we leverage both of them, you know? Be a good therapist, ask about these, you know, other extra things, but make sure that also you're addressing any orthopedic defi uh, deficits that you're, that you're running into. I think maybe having both of those things important. So I guess this is maybe a good point in time to talk about, you know, how do you address orthopedic deficits in this patient profile? What are some, like, really key things that we're looking for in treatment? So unlike a lot of other orthopedic conditions that we treat, there is not a lot of evidence for specific manual therapy techniques or specific exercises for patients with uh, whiplash-associated disorders. So, so we know that PT is effective. It is better than no treatment at all. Um, we know that early mobilization, early immobilization is detrimental. So barring having actual cervical instability or a fracture, these people should not be wearing cervical collars. You need to get them out of it. You need to get them moving within a pain-free range and avoid that um, fear avoidance behavior. So you're not going to treat these patients that much unlike you would treat any other cervical problem. So you need to find their specific deficits because like we talked about, it's not a diagnosis. It's a mechanism of injury. So you still have to do your differential diagnosis, um, looking for not so much a pathoanatomical cause, but looking at what impairments are there that you're going to tackle. So, you know, do they have proprioceptive uh, deficits? Do they have hypermobility, cervicogenic dizziness, altered muscle recruitment patterns? Those are all areas that we can address in therapy. Um, the treatment-based classification that we did our first episode on, that can guide us here as well. So if you look at the FRITZ study from 2007, even though it hasn't been validated yet, there's a category for whiplash. And those are, I'm sorry, it's not whiplash, it's pain. It's pain category. And those are patients uh, that have had a whiplash injuries within 30 days of the time that you've seen them. NVI greater than 52, uh, greater than 7 out of 10 pain at initial evaluation, those patients are all going to fall into the pain category. And that category um, you would treat with Therex and cervical mobilization. So we've talked about a lot of really uh, diverse subject matter today. Um, everything from the different kind of subjective questions you have to ask, the different screening tools, Tyler hit really well on some of the physical examinations. Riley brought home a lot of the treatment that we have to talk about. Um, so we really were hoping to give you guys some homework. Um, so HEP, we talked about the other day. <laughs> we're gonna give you an HEP. Uh, so this is what we'd like you to do, and we're gonna help you out with this a little bit. We'll put some of it on the Circast Twitter feed. Um, we're also going to be launching a Facebook group uh, that helps spread some of this information as well, um, so that you can kind of access a little bit of this. Uh, the first part of your homework is this: we want you to start implementing the two-item FABQ into your whiplash patient's uh, evaluation as a standard procedure. It can be verbally given where you just ask the two questions uh, or it can be something where you have it, write it, have it written down and they fill it out during their intake paperwork. We want you to do something to be able to gauge uh, uh, that possible extra part of the diagnosis. Uh, the second part of your homework is we want you to at least Google and look up the IES or the impact of event scale which helps test for PTSD. That way you at least know some maybe some extra questions that you should be asking uh, for this patient population, especially if two and two are not making four. 
Uh, and then the third thing, and the most important part of your home exercise program, is we want all of you guys, if you haven't already done so, to seek out a medical health, a mental health professional, excuse me, within your community that you can refer your patient to should any of uh, this kind of uh, light up and trigger and they're not responding to a typical orthopedic treatment. Uh, I think that this is a really good way of starting to maybe dive into the extra stuff that whiplash patients give us uh, and it makes you a much better therapist. It obviously makes our company look a heck of a lot better that we're treating the entire um, uh, I guess, mechanism of injury. That's the word it's not a diagnosis, right? That we're treating the, the, the whole picture here and that we're not just treating uh, the orthopedic side of it. Well, guys, thanks so much for listening to us this month. It's been really fun uh, diving into this patient population. Uh, just remember, we know it kind of seems like an intimidating population to deal with, uh, but you guys can do this. You're awesome therapists. If you start to utilize some of these tools, I really think that you're going to see a big change in, in the way that you deliver services to this patient population. So again, thanks so much for listening to us on CIRCAST. We'll see you next month.